Hi, J. Crew. It's me, Stephanie Butnick. And we have something special for you today. In a little bit, you're going to hear hundreds of people clapping. And not just any people. These are rabbis, cantors, synagogue educators, and lay leaders in the conservative movement, all gathered in one place. You'll hear a little bit of our most recent live show. And then, because it's Hanukkah, and because on Hanukkah, we love beautifully Jewish objects like menorahs and dreidels and beautiful wicks to light those Hanukkah lights, we're bringing you a joyous and festive installment of Beautifully Jewish. Happy Hanukkah. Hello, Baltimore. Good instincts. Good instincts. Very good instincts. (laughs) We are Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. Yeah. This is great. By the way, just do this after every line. Uh, It's call and response. It'll be great. Applause until the end. We'll be here all night. Uh, I am Stephanie Butnick, and I'm joined. Oh my God, thank you. We're never leaving. Um, and I'm joined by my co-host, tablet editor at large, Leah Leibovitz. And big famous Jew, Joshua Molina. Yeah! Good morning, Baltimore. <laughs> we should have done the whole number. The all singing, all dancing edition of an Orthodox. We are so excited to be here today at the conservative Masorti Shabbaton and convening. I'm so sorry that I've said that word wrong every single time I recorded an ad. No, convening, you nailed it. Convening. Convening? Am I saying it right? We're just so proud to be part of this gathering. It's going to be a great show. We are so excited to be here with you. And, and we're so excited to convene. Usually we fellowship with people, but now we're convening. Usually we start the show with banter. The only thing I can talk about is this. It's Eileen. Do we know about this? Not Eileen, but Eileen. Come on, Eileen. The, to- the, the trope trainer. What is this? I love this so much. No, it's a stress Pickle, oh, and is this like, Some feel, of us honestly? Ha- have our own stress pickle. Five, 5,000 years of Jewish history, very nicely done, Ms. Molina. That's what you get at a live show. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff we edit out later. I, I feel like 5,000 years of Jewish history have come down to these two words stress pickle. Stress pickle. <laughs> name name of our band. <laughs> and I love it. It's like as you're learning to lane, right? This is the, t- the, the trope trainer, which I read is like the number one trope, tro- yep. trope learning, uh, Torah learning system. I, I Googled it because I wanted to know more. Um, is this for while you're learning to lane when you're stressed? Yes, when you want to hit your dad or your mom who's teaching you. <laughs> take it out on the. Okay, I love this. I hope all, do all of you have this? Did everyone steal this? I love it. I'm going to be doing this the whole, actually, no, so, it's hurting my hands. Um, trope trainer subscriber right here. Okay. Um, and but did you get one of these? I did not get one of these. Uh, but here's what I did get. I got the, you know, ability of laning. Uh, and <laughs> this, this week, as, as it happens, um, my very dear friends, uh, I'm, I'm going to go light on the details here because it's their story to tell. But they are a Jewish family from an Eastern European country in whose family Judaism has been sort of concealed for several decades for somewhat obvious reasons as it was inconvenient to be publicly identified as, as Jews. In, uh, unlike America right now, in Europe in the 40s, being Jewish sometimes had its dangerous to pay very different from uh, us. And so this was the first bar mitzvah in, I think, like 85 years in the family. It was a very, very, very big deal. And they celebrated this bar mitzvah. It was super beautiful and very fortunate to take a part of it. They called me a few weeks ago and they said, look, you know, it's a big parsha. The boy is going to do, you know, one, two, and seven, the first, second, and seventh aliyot, or one, two, three, and seven. His bar mitzvah tutor is going to do four. 
could you take five and six? Now, rookie mistake, I said yes. The first thing that you do is always, you go and you read five and six, and you count the verses. Because had I done so, the number would have been 738 verses altogether. So the two longest aliyot in the freaking entire Torah. Okay. So I understand what I'm into, and I'm, I'm you know, trope training it, uh, and I, I got this thing right, and I have a bunch of cheat sheets with, like, notations and stuff. And, this is you. You know, I walk in. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. Doing, I'm doing the, the pickle stress, the stress pickle thing. Um, and I walk in, and I'm, you know, as I, as I sort of walk to show that morning, I was like, you know what, it's going to be fine, because... If I make a mistake, like, who's going to notice? Like, who in that room is going? Because it's not an orthodox show. It was, like, at some other venue and was this really beautiful, moving, touching ceremony, but not at a synagogue and a bunch of friends from all walks of life. But I didn't think any real observant people would, would be there. So who's going to notice if I, you know, do my etnachta wrong or my zakef katan or my munach? Is not, yeah, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be fine. And I walk into this room, and the first face I see, is a very major Orthodox rabbi who is looking at me with a big smile. <laughs> and I say, oh, you see, you're going to be the guy who's going to be like, nope, nope, that's not at all how the music goes. Uh, I was literally drenched in sweat at the end of this thing. It was amazing, but I had, I think, like something like 19 Proseccos at the Kiddush because I was like, done. <laughs> but that really brings you back to that like 13-year-old boy up there also hoping not to totally screw up in front of people. Yes. Which is that, the, the point, right? Which is, I was bar mitzvah at an Orthodox shul, and we had a very stern, strict, I guess the gabai would correct everything. And my parents swear that mid-laning, I just, we had a stare down. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just, I just withered him until he finally removed himself from the bima, and I carried on. And that's like, that's what you do with directors now, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> no notes. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a very joyous occasion. Wow. What, can how, you, can, how was your shop? Melina, can, can you, you top that? that? Uh, Whoa, whoa, whoa. That is the opposite of a mic drop. It's just like a mic. Just don't even Um, try. I was just going to say how delighted I am to be here. I was last week, I went to and I spoke. Thank you for that tepid applause. The one one person who acknowledges you. I find it very, I don't get out of the house a lot, particularly what with the pandemic these last few years. And last week, I went and I spoke to the Greater Federation of Greater Naples in Florida. It's what, my, it's what my friend Ajay somewhat cynically calls telling Jews they're right for money. <laughs> Wait, don't tell them our I secret. call it a speaking engagement. Um, but thank you. They pay double if you tell them you're wrong, by the way. Take it from yeah. me. <laughs> there we go. So what I was going to say, it's always nice to meet a new, new to me, Jewish community. The Greater Naples being a somewhat more permanent one, this one being an assemblage, a convening, if you will, <laughs> of Jews from all over. And I find it heartening and hopeful and energizing to meet other people and discover how they live Jewishly. So that's, I'm excited to be here. Oh. Thank you for that awe. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And now you've just like pandered to the crowd. Yes, I'm like, uh, let's well, just. I have a long history of that. <laughs> If only there was a profession. <laughs> if only I could monetize it. made a living of pandering no, to its audience. I haven't been able to. <laughs> but you're back. The back. The strike's over. Strike's We're over. Oh, it hasn't been ratified yet. Last day of voting is tomorrow. Ooh. We'll see. By the time this is out, I will no longer be on strike, most likely. I'll just be out of work. <laughs> News of the Jews. Oh, yeah. N-O-T-J News. Of the Jews. 
my first headline of the day is just that London canceled Hanukkah. I don't know if you guys saw this. They just canceled it. They said, no Hanukkah. I'm going to read this to you from the Jerusalem Post. Havering Council, a municipality located in East London, announced that the annual Hanukkah installation would not be taking place this year due to, quote, conflict in the Middle East. This is their statement. The council has taken the difficult decision to pause the planned installation of the Hanukkah menorah outside Havering Town Hall this year. We appreciate this is a hugely sensitive issue, Hanukkah, um, <laughs> but in light of escalating tensions from the conflict in the Middle East, installing the candelabra now will not be without risk to the council, our partner staff, and local residents. We would also be concerned with any possible vandalism or other action against the installation. Blah, 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 blah. Seems to Blue. me that Havering Council perhaps is missing the true meaning of Hanukkah, <laughs> which is not hiding the menorah. <laughs> And putting it in the window, proudly displaying or, or, or if, or, or, or if I may, uh, of what happens to people who try to tell Jews that they can't be Jews in public. Historically, Hanukkah does not end well for them. But, also true. You know, but, but, but here's the thing. I forgot there is a warning story. I love, I love this story so much. Uh, not uh, because it affirms one of my many... I have a lot of biases against pretty much every European country you can imagine. Belgium, of course, being the worst country in the world. But, uh, but, but you know, uh, the UK is a very close second. Uh, you know, really a collection of filthy anti-Semites. Uh, but the thing that really kind of unites or ignites my love here, uh, part of my bias is that every time I read about anything that takes place in the UK, it immediately seems to me like it's part of like a J.R. Tolkien Lord of the Rings thing. Here, get this. It's literally called the Have Ring Council. And, and their statement's like, well, you cannot install the candelabra. It sounds like part of some mythical quest involving elves. Like, I'm sorry, Jews, you're racist. This is really insane. Well, the great news is that we sped up to the end of the movie where they found the true meaning of Hanukkah. They reinstalled Hanukkah. The candelabra, uh, whatever that is, is going up. Who knows how, hopefully it has the right amount of branches, just like out of respect to our people. But Gin that should have lasted one night lasted eight crazy Uh, nights. uh. Yes. Um, So I guess an early Hanukkah miracle for all of us. And then we can update the story when it in fact is vandalized. It is in fact vandalized, yes. God forbid. I have a a sports-related headline. Do you want, does anyone else? Are you sure this belongs in News of the Jews? (laughs) Oh, owners. This is about ownership? Oh, okay. Yeah, bring it. <laughs> now I get it. Okay. That way, makes sense. I think this is the cabal. Like, I think we found it. We're here. <laughs> I've heard about this. I knew there were meetings, but I've never actually been invited to one. <laughs> We've really made it. Yes, we have. Give us sports. <clears throat> Mark Cuban selling the Dallas Mavericks to Miriam Adelson. Jewish billionaire and Shark Tank star Mark Cuban is likely the best-known owner in the NBA. Da 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 da. He is now selling his team to the widow, says the JTA story of influential Republican mega donor Sheldon Adelson, who just purchased Cuban's ownership of the Dallas Mavericks, the NBA team, for a reported 3.5 billion dollars. Now, first of all, I'm really, really ashamed of of the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, which is ordinarily a fantastic news source, but they're really bearing the lead because the lead is that he bought it for 285 million. <laughs> so we should really calculate the percentage here and be very proud of, of the smart Jew. Uh, yeah, that's a shark. That's, that's shark very, very nice. That should be the headline. Jew makes 483% profit on from investment. An- <laughs> but don't worry, it's from another Jew. He charged interest. Um, I don't know, like, good for the Jews, bad for the Jews. 
I feel like this is just going to make people hate the Jews more. I know there's nothing we can do about that. But for some reason, I feel like, I don't know, because that was like, like, Mark Cuban's like a big, loud Jew. I'm, gonna, I'm like Miriam Adelson, yes. who's very timid and shy and about know what, yes. intervening. But and, I'm saying, like, I think it's Adelson. I just got to let me just stick up. Adelson, right? Adelson. I mean, if I had half their money, you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> but yeah, it is Adelson, Adelson, and I've been corrected about this before, and I'm sorry. I'm going to go with Adelson. You and I get say to do Adelson, this. I say Adelson. Because <laughs> if I may, Miriam yeah. Adelson. I know billionaire is pronounced billionaire. <laughs> billionaire. <laughs> that one I got. Miriam Adelson was my mother's OBGYN. Back in the day. And that's a true story. Really? So I get to call her whatever I, I want. I had no idea it paid that well. There you have it. You too. Yeah, I should have gotten Go to medical that. school. You too could buy an NBA team one day very soon. <laughs> tell tell wow. your sons and daughters. A doctor. The whole thing, though, about really uh, sports owners, like this is like one of my favorite things. Because at one and the same time, you want to be so proud. Like, oh, my team is owned by this guy. It's like, and at the other end, it's like, no, no, please, God, no. May, may we own nothing. Like, this is the most kind of visibly uncomfortable. You know what I'm saying? Because, like, first of all, like, the whole owner status and, like, you have to decide everyone's kind of fate and make all these decisions. I, I really don't like that, especially in sports, especially if I may in football, which is a game I'm, I'm growing increasingly uncomfortable with by, by the moment. You heard it here first. You know? But I'm Israeli, what do I know? And by football, you don't mean soccer. No, I do not. Okay. <laughs> Does anyone here share this This It is awkward. I mean, it's literally, you're called, it, you're called an owner. Right. You own things. Right, and, and, and some people. People, yeah. It's, it's, it's also kind of like godlike. Like, you trade, it's, it's- There's also something so, you know, incredibly just weird about the whole thing. Because like, yes, technically it is a business. But to those of us who spend way too much of their time and money obsessing over sports, it's kind of not even a public utility, but almost like, you know, like a, like a religious outcrop. Like, I think of the Mets, you know, in very similar terms, like I think about Judaism. They're both, you know, exercises in like being in really weird historical positions where other people are out to get you and then you escape in the nick of time and then there's a miracle and then you wait another 60 years until <laughs> something good happens, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> but like, how could you own that and, and make it a business and at the same time respect the tremendous emotional, spiritual investment that these people put into these teams? I would never want to own a sports team. And you probably and never probably will. will not. Yeah, luckily, luckily I don't, I'm sorry you. to be the one to say it. Well, here, here's my segue here. And speaking of people hating the Jews, oh, uh, that, wow. could, that could follow That anything. is an evergreen segue. I didn't even know what was coming before that. We'll be uh, using that one again. <laughs> Cornell's Jewish president, did you guys see this? This, just, this seems to just have happened. She was found guilty in a mock trial of genocide. That is a thing that happened. She's on now Cornell. being held in mock prison. <laughs> Pro-Palestinian students occupied Day Hall. On, this is from the Cornell Sun. Day, Day Hall. Day Hall. On Friday, December 1, they demanded the university adopt policies against doxing, a new definition of anti-Semitism, and commit to divestment in companies that support Israel's military. That's the most important part. Um, the occupation, it says, ended, that's weird, ended on Sunday, December 3rd, after the university agreed to set up a meeting between protesters. Starting at noon, organizers began a mock trial for President Martha Pollock outside of Day Hall, the administrative building, accusing her of complicity in genocide against Palestinian civilians, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Point is, I put, put a picture here. They literally printed out a cardboard picture of poor Martha Pollock. Um, and surrounded her with money bags. That was a nice touch. <laughs> and they just have signs. They're charging her with genocide. So this poor woman. And I feel like it's, she's Jewish. Like, it's kind of weird. Yes. And Martha Pollock, to her credit, I think did well and did so publicly when Jewish students were threatened 
And uh, she went and she ate at the kosher kitchen and she's been, I think, a stalwart supporter. And uh... So does her being Jewish have anything to do with this, do you think? <laughs> Guys, I'm trying, I'm going for naive and optimistic. I mean, look, I, I for one, am I shocked think, yes. that, uh, that anti-Jewish shocked. sentiments would erupt on college campuses. <laughs> you know, no one could have seen that coming Particularly for the past, League, I don't know, I 10 years uh, or so. This is, this, is, this is amazing. One of the greatest treasures of being a paranoid is that occasionally reality would actually reward your greatest fears. Be like, yeah, no, that was absolutely true. Remember the thing when you thought that everyone here hated you? Actually, yeah, they kind of all do. Here's, here's, here's the money uh, shot in, in this specific thing. The occupation ended on Sunday, December 3rd, after university agreed to set up a meeting between protesters and the university's chief financial officer to discuss their investment concerns. The funny thing is that this is actually indicative of the greater problem. Like, we think that the big problem with American universities is, oh, anti-Semitism and political. Like, the big problem is that there, these are dumb, big, soulless businesses. Like, running a university right now is like running an Arby's. Like, you're basically selling sandwiches and then franchises to, like, other countries who would like to have NYU Abu Dhabi and Shanghai and are willing to pay for it. So, of course, they're going to treat these people like, quote-unquote, customers. Be like, oh, you have a complaint about the service here in Cornell? Oh, it's about Jews having too much money and power? Please come into a meeting, and we will discuss this in a civilized fashion where we will share with you our investment strategy. This is a, a, a sign of absolute moral rot, and as always, we're the freaking canary in the coal mine. Ah, I say they're, they're upset college students. If you can get them to accept, we'll have a meeting with you. <laughs> well played. And, and it's going to be at 9 a.m. That's the joke. Right. Yeah, exactly. And no Nobody's one's going to come. <laughs> Why did I take this class? <laughs> I like that, like, their version of, like, I'd like to speak with the manager. It's like, I'd like to charge the president with genocide. <laughs> there's, there's no, there's no. By the way, I'm going to try this next time, like, some restaurant gets my delivery wrong. <laughs> Hello, yeah, uh, you know, Hunan Farm. Yeah, you just sent me the chicken lo mein instead of the vagina lo mein. I'd like to charge you with genocide for that, please. <laughs> I'd like to send you to the, the fake Hague. I think that's all I can stomach for, for now. Um, we have <laughs> all, all the news that are All the news, NYU Arby's. It actually sounds delicious. Is there anything at Arby's that's kosher? There is no kosher Arby's, alas. There's no fish sandwich, it's close enough. Did that have fins and scales before you fried it? No. Okay. Although I will say, <laughs> so we, we had a, a tablet event this summer in New York, and I was at the time elsewhere, a uh, nine-hour drive away. Uh, but this is a really big event, and so came and then had to return to where I was summering. To use a verb I never thought I would use. And well, Jews don't summer. This don't say was, that. No, for Jews, it's always like mid, you know, mid, mid to late uh, winter. Um, <laughs> I was driving back uh, and it was completely famished because I hadn't, for whatever crazy set of circumstances, had not eaten the whole day. And the only thing that was open was this rest stop and it had a McDonald's. I'm like, there's nothing I could eat here. It's absolutely nothing I could eat here. And I walked in and I had this lovely server. I was like, okay, look, here's the thing. I, I keep kosher. Is there any possibility in which you could just make a sandwich, just like the buns and the vegetables and the cheese? And she looks at me in this like profound way and just doesn't say a word, just nods her head and returns like seven minutes later, like the longest I've ever waited at a McDonald's <laughs> with this like pristine, beautiful thing with like three kind of like stories to it <laughs> with like 17 slices of cheese and like very perfectly placed like pickles. It was, 
honestly the best cheese sandwich I think I ever had. Yeah, so happy here's here's so here's some McDonald's. Was it awkward when he charged her with genocide? <laughs> Just a little bit. I was like, excuse me, you forgot the onions, so <laughs> Jacuz. <laughs> are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. Welcome to our fourth installment of Beautifully Jewish, our series celebrating the objects that enrich our Jewish lives. As ever, I'm here with Tanya Singer, my co-host and co-creator on this series. Happy Hanukkah. Thank you. And happy Hanukkah to you as well. So look, every Jewish holiday has objects. For Passover, we have the Seder plate and the Afi Komen bag. For Purim, we have groggers. But no holiday is as steeped in material culture as Hanukkah. Each night we light the menorah, just like they did in the Hanukkah story. These menorahs are objects that for generations have kept Jewish crafters and artists inspired. Objects that reflected both ancient customs and the modern sensibilities of the moment. And so, for our beautifully Jewish Hanukkah, we're celebrating that most important Hanukkah object. The menorah, or Hanukkiah, or Hanukkah lamp. First, we welcome back Gabriel Goldstein, Interim Director and Chief Curator of the Yeshiva University Museum, to break down the history of Hanukkah observance. Then we talk to designer Jonathan Adler about putting his modern spin on this beloved Jewish ritual object. And finally, Tanya and I take a special trip to Muncie, New York, to visit Ahuva Gottiner, better known as Homegrown Kosher, who teaches us how to spin our own wicks for an oil menorah. Let's get started with Gabriel Goldstein, who takes us all the way back to the beginning. Gabriel Goldstein, welcome back to Beautifully Jewish on Unorthodox. It's my great pleasure to be here once again. Could you give us the story of Hanukkah? So the first Hanukkah really emerges from a military victory that is seen as a miraculous, divinely inspired opportunity. And that is because in the third and second century BCE, the Seleucids, the Syrian Greeks, controlled the land of Israel, Judea. And at that point, they imposed that the people would have to stop celebrating and living Jewishly, learning Torah, worshiping the divine God within the temple precincts. And the temple precincts were forced to become a temple to Zeus. And then arose a movement, a military movement, to fight against these conquerors, these rulers. 
And those are the Hasmoneans, Hasmoneans. And they were victorious, which was kind of shockingly amazing, right? And this was a rebellion, a revolt, which forced out a world power and then was able to then reclaim and rededicate, that is the word Hanukkah, to rededicate the Temple of Jerusalem. And then there's the miracle, but the miracle is very heavily, it's Al-Hanisim on the miracles. The miracles are multiple, it's not one, but the miracle is very much about the military victory and the rededication of the temple and the opportunity that provided for full Jewish life. The other miracle that perhaps is well-known and more legendary and comes down to us in the Talmud is that in this rededication and the lighting of the menorah, lighting of the seven-branch candelabrum in the temple precincts, only one cruise of oil was discovered. That one cruise of oil was only a one-day supply. But miraculously, according to that Talmud, the oil lasted for eight days. And that eight days of the oil lasting allowed for new purified oil to be prepared and available to continue the practice and the celebration. And that became then the miracles of Hanukkah that are then celebrated across the generations. So part of the miracle and the mitzvah of Hanukkah is the presum hanes, the publicizing of the miracle. And that is why Hanukkah lamps are lit and are placed generally in windows, and that people then absorb and see and recognize that light, that miracle, that celebration, and that duality of something that's both personal and familial, but then also public and communal, something that's very special with this special material culture celebration. In many communities, one sees that the most perhaps in Jerusalem that's familiar to people, Hanukkah lamps are placed outside the home in Jerusalem. One often sees them placed within special kind of glass vitrines, special cases outside of the home. In many communities, they were placed similarly, very blatantly in windows, and then something we see in America. In other communities, and that's particularly resonant maybe at the moment, in times of increased anti-Semitism and fear, there was a different practice of bringing them indoors. And then in many communities, they were then also placed especially within the home and in the entranceway in some level, and they were placed on the opposite the mezuzah on a doorpost. So people entered into them surrounded by this idea of commandment, recognition, light, and text. We are tasked with being a light unto the nations. This is such a symbol of that light. Certainly, the light was shining forth and the idea of putting our Hanukkah lamps, our Hanukkah celebrations in this kind of dual force of being internal and then projecting out to the external that kind of has that combination. The menorah lit initially, not a Hanukkah lamp, a seven-branch lamp lit in the temple was really within the temple precincts, was within the community itself, within the nation, and then within the nation and God. So when does Hanukkah become such a big deal for, for modern Jews? It's more of a post-war, mid-20th century experience of American Jewry turning Hanukkah into a celebration, which is a December seasonal celebration, very much a child-oriented celebration already in that era. In the post-war baby boom, there's a great growth in child-centered Judaism. That's like the age of the Jew congregation, and Hanukkah really fit into that. The other flip side to that in the same period is post-1948, the military victory and the independence and the rededication became a major storyline of Hanukkah within the state of Israel. And a newly invigorated, independent, strong military presence within the state of Israel became a Hanukkah story alongside the rampantly growing culture of Sufganiyah. And that, that's also a Mizrahi influence, a Eastern influence of the fried dough foods, 
which weren't the Latka potato-based Eastern European Jewish food of Hanukkah for Ashkenazi immigrants all over the world. You also do see in Hanukkah lamps in this period in Israel and also elsewhere, and even earlier, increased military motifs and some explicitly Sahal Israeli Defense Force themes on Hanukkah lamps. It's Masada, it's Hanukkah, like these symbols, these are big symbols for us. And there's also this famous image of a menorah in a window in Nazi Germany. Yeah, so that's out of this. That's the idea of projecting out to the public, but also that's a very much a personal statement of faith and belief and presence. So in 1995 in Billings, Montana, there was an anti-Semitic episode, a very limited anti-Semitic episode in a community with very few Jews. And there was this town-wide response to place images of menorahs in family homes throughout the town as the symbol of solidarity and connectedness, tolerance, and hope. I would love to see that in every window now, that everyone would put that that signal and bring light with us into the world in this moment. I hear Hanukkah lamp. I hear menorah. We also know about the Hanukkah. Tell us, break down the different terms and, and what they mean. The terminology is tricky, like with lots of things. In the isolated community of Jewish museums and Judaica, we use the word in English, Hanukkah lamp. That word is used in, in Hebrew language as menorat Hanukkah, using the word that's lamp, that's menorah, right? The menorah refers to a multi-branched structure, really initially the seven-branch menorah of the temple or of the tabernacle, the mishkan preceding the temple, the Beit HaMikdash. And then that form, this multi-branched form, in its eight-branch version with, or with, a, with a nine, with a central shamash, is also referred to because of its form as a menorah or a menorah, right? Menorah is the usual term that's used in English, kind of common American usage for Hanukkah object, central object, candle, oil, lighting object, and that's fine. Hanukkah is even trickier. Hanukkah is the general contemporary Hebrew usage term. There is one rare occurrence of the term going back into the 18th century on a Hanukkah lamp from Holland, but then the term is really well known. We think it probably emerged as a kind of like a child-friendly new Hebrew term in the revitalization of Hebrew language. And my hunch, though this isn't proven, is that it came from Levin Kipnis, who is a very famous children's author and songwriter in early Israel. And the word that we know that's like it is shkedia, like an shkedia parachat, the almond tree blossoms. That's like the the Tubishvat anthem. And he created these new words with this yud hey kind of suffix for like a growing new Hebrew optimism and language and children's culture. Could you give a primer for people who each year may sort of forget which way to place the candles and which way to light? So this is obviously like a Talmudic debate. This was a classic Talmudic debate, whether the candles should be, whether we should start with eight and then go down to seven, six, five kind of echoing the way that the oil in the menorah in the temple itself burns slowly to last the eight days, or we increase them, like we go according to Hillel in that approach, the house of Hillel, in that we increase because the miracle was stronger each day. The right to left thing is tricky because it depends which way you use as the format. Usually people do it right to left facing towards it rather than the viewer on the other side of the window in terms of the increase. And the it's the new light for that night, which is the first one to be lit. So then you're lighting from left to right. Love that. 
So I imagine in terms of, I'll call it a Hanukkah lamp. I like that. In terms of Hanukkah lamps over the generations, do we typically see, like, if you were a German family in the 1800s, like, are your Hanukkah lamps going to look like the popular art form at the time in a way that now there's so many menorahs that that hewed to a very, like, current sensibility? So Hanukkah lamps certainly follow current fashions as well as traditional practices. They're unusual a little bit in the body of Jewish ceremonial objects in that they're like really distinct needs. Like for a Kiddush cup, you can use any cup or any kind of more lovely goblet type of thing. But for something which has eight lights and then a separate shamash server light, that's kind of a very weird process. So they tend to need to be kind of distinctly made for this purpose. They certainly follow current fashions. There also are very well-defined typologies of different Hanukkah lamp styles, formats, decorative motifs that are used in distinct regions, sometimes in North Africa, for example, distinct types per town that have been documented and well-known. Many of them in many communities use the menorah form, or echo, a branched, multi-branched form as in the tabernacle and temple menorah, but many, many more are bench format. And the most common structure is that they tend to be architectural. And that's important because it does a number of things at once. First of all, it reflects Black on the story why we talked about that this is all about the temple itself, right? And then also brought into the home. So very architectural. And then it's going to echo where the Hanukkah lamp itself is placed. So is it placed in a window? Is it placed in a doorway? Is it placed immediately in front of a building? So that's architectural vocabularies are very much present within Hanukkah lamp design internationally. Gabriel Goldstein, can I be the first to wish you a happy Hanukkah? Yes, you are the first. Thank you. And I wish it to everyone else as well. So, Tanya, I have to ask you, what's your most meaningful menorah? I imagine you have many, but like, what's the one for you? I do have many. There's one that I'm sure no one else has. Just before my son Sam's bar mitzvah, we made a family trip to Israel and did this trip to Beit Guvrin, this dig for a day. And a lot of people told me this was great. It was great. You were part of an actual archaeological dig in a community that goes back to the actual Hanukkah story. And when you're digging, there are tons and tons of shards of basically stuff that from a historical perspective has no value. But to me, I couldn't bear the thought of leaving it when I was offered to take some home. And I had no idea what to do with it. I'm not a person who collects pebbles on the beach or shells. I don't keep those things. But these shards felt different, having seen the connection to Jews living in this place 2,000 years ago. Like, it was just amazing. So I took the shards, and then I, I kind of channeled my inner third grader. And I went to town. I made a really flat little Hanukkah. I don't actually use it because because it's so pretty, but it's all these different shards that were from Beit Guvrin, and they're just these all these different earth tones from pottery going back to Hanukkah times. That's amazing. So you really channeled it into the most relevant object, right? You made a Hanukkah out of it. I did, and it, it connects us to Israel, it connects my whole family to that special moment that we had. It, 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 it just gives me good feeling. That's beautiful. Mine is less sentimental, um, but I still really, really love it. My favorite menorah, my favorite Hanukkah lamp, whatever we're calling it these days, is the Jonathan Adler peacock menorah. And I actually loved it so much that I wanted to talk to Jonathan himself. So Tanya and I called Jonathan Adler up to learn a little bit more. Shalom. It's so nice to have you back on the show. I am so happy to be here. I am all tablet all the time, so it feels beshert. By the way, I've just exhausted my Yiddish, so don't expect more. <laughs> 
tell us what a menorah means to you. Menorahs and Judaica in general are really an opportunity to kind of be expressive and abstract. It's a strange thing. It's a functional object that's kind of unmoored from typical form. Like one knows sort of the kind of menorahs like my Nana had, where it was just like a very typical brass thing. But I don't think that menorahs have to be like that. You know, they can sort of be anything. And I think Judaica and anything religious is sort of an opportunity to try to do something abstract and to try to soar. You know, a pitcher, if you're going to make a pitcher, it's pretty clear what it has to be. It has to have a handle. There are very many limitations, whereas there are fewer in religious stuff. It's an opportunity to do something really daring and fantastic. I have your peacock menorah, and I love it so much because it sits out all year and you almost don't know it's a menorah. That one is my chef d'oeuvre. And guess what? <laughs> it's on sale because people don't love it. And I'm like, are you on crack, people? Like, just look at it. it it's is like a sculpture. Flawless. I don't mean to be self-congratulatory because I'm anything but, typically. But when I designed that, I was like, yep. How did you design that? How did you make that? The kind of inspiration for the peacock menorah was actually, I was thinking a lot about Viennese secession design, which is like a early 20th century design movement that was really about minimalism, sort of an economy of gesture, and a bit of gold. I think like Klimt paintings, Joseph Hoffman design. So I kind of wanted to do something that, that had the minimalist restraint that I associate with that movement, but the sense of glamour and ornament that I also associate. So that was kind of the stylistic genesis. And then it's like a very pared down, almost abstracted take on a peacock. The feathers, I suppose, are, I sort of did them in a much more rectilinear way. It has this rhythm of gold lines and dots that, again, is kind of reminiscent of Wiener Verstadter design. And you know it's a peacock, but it doesn't look like a peacock. And you have a new menorah with you right now. I have seen it all over my Instagram. Oh, good. I'm being targeted by it. Thank God. Yes, I'll <laughs> hold it up for you guys. This is, um, again, another example of how weird and abstract Judaica can be. This looks absolutely nothing like a menorah, but it's a menorah. And it's sort of, again, an attempt to soar. And as much as people think about me, they probably think I'm a maximalist because I make a lot of stuff. But I'm really a minimalist as a designer. I really try to strip things down to sort of an economy of gesture. And I think I did that with this mustique menorah, which is like a very abstract composition of bent pipes and a giant ball made out of um, marbleized resin. And, and again, it's just sort of the genesis of that idea was about thinking about a, just a new way to create a menorah in a very improbable way. Again, using an economy of gesture, I just thought, all right, pipes and balls, what can I do? You have the, the shamash, you write our main candle up, up top, and that seems to be the only real thing that you need to follow, right? Like the only real regulation. Yeah, that's the main deal. You got to keep that guy up. And I think I've screwed up a few times. I've made I've made my share of menorahs over the years. And I think not all of them have been like fully kosh. But, you know, I try. You're so well known for your, your bright designs, your really fun jars you make, your sculptures, your candles. Was Judaica always part of the equation for you when you started making things? I think... Judaica has always been in my heart. You know, it's, it's really interesting. I was thinking a lot about 
the craft movement. You know, I'm a craft person. I started out as a potter. And there's no shortage of Jewish craftspeople, especially in the early parts of the new craft movement, which is really in the 50s and 60s. A lot of it was Jewy. And I think that that kind of happened for a few different reasons. I think one was that there was that sort of commie socialist Jewish diaspora vibe that was very much about like artisans and artisanhood. And there was sort of a uh, Bauhaus diaspora that involved a lot of Jews who were making stuff. But I also think that the, the real reason is because Jews grow up with ceremonial stuff in our houses. I was talking to my Goyish husband about this last night. And I was like, what do you guys, what do you have that's iconographic? And he's like, I guess like the occasional cross and a picture of Jesus. Whereas we have holo covers, there's the occasional novelty yarmulke, menorahs, a go-go, other sort of Shabbos candlesticks. There's just a lot of craft and Judaica around a Jewish home that I think in my case definitely triggered a desire to express myself in Judaica. So it does feel like in this moment, there's two impulses. One is to like hide, right? And say like, oh no, being Jewish is scary. I don't want to do it. And the other impulse is to like go big, right? And be like, I'm putting on the Jewish star. I'm getting the big menorah. Like it does feel like you're in the like, go bright, go bold, beautify, get the objects, go big. That's definitely how I roll design-wise and in my company. And as a Jew, that's very much how I am feeling. Like probably everybody who's listening to this, the last six weeks have just been horrible and devastating and enraging and very, very isolating, I think, as we all would agree. And I think it's, you know... I definitely like to be among my Jewish brothers and sisters now more than ever. And I'm very proud of being Jewish. And it's very much a part of me. I love it. And as a crafter, what you do for everything, but especially for Judaica, is just a real inspiration. You know, in a time when everyone's so frustrated and cannot think of anything to do other than give money, which, you know, I'm sure we all are doing, but craft is almost the opposite. It's like a very, very humble enterprise. It's taking very humble materials and making something out of nothing. It's about time and intent and talent. We love what you do because you you help us make these items our own and you help us express ourselves through Jewish objects and that we can do that and that we can have beautiful Jewish objects is so important for everyone to realize. Well, that's so nice. And yeah, I love Judaic and I love that it is a forum in which to soar aesthetically. And if I were more spiritual, I would even say spiritually. What's your perfect Hanukkah? Well, I don't have kids. I have a nephew. So, you know, I always like to spoil him. But I think when I think of Hanukkah, of course, I think about my childhood. And the horrible thing about Hanukkah was that I would say there was like maybe like three big nights and like five fillers. And those sucked. So my perfect Hanukkah would be eight nights of solid gifts. And no, I think at the nadir of our childhood Hanukkah was there was one night we would all get these horrible, like, chocolate oranges, which I don't even know what the <laughs> hell that was or why that became a thing in my family. It seems so random. We're not chocolate orange people. It just was like, oh, the third night's chocolate orange night. Like, I don't want your stupid chocolate orange. So my ideal Hanukkah would be no chocolate oranges, all biggies. Jonathan Ether, happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. It's such a treat to talk to you. Peace out. Thank you for making our lives beautifully Jewish. Oh. 
All right, Stephanie, it will come as no surprise to you that I follow a lot of craft and Jewish things on social media. And there's someone who lives at the intersection of both in the most amazing way. Her name is Ahuva Gottdiener, also known as Homegrown Kosher. People probably know her as Homegrown Kosher. She has this incredible suburban farm in Muncie, New York, where she has chickens, big chicken coop. She has beekeeping. She has a garden. She grows her own garlic. I am transfixed by her videos. I can't stop watching them. It's always a good time to talk to Ahuva, but this had to be the time to go. She embodies the spirit of Hanukkah, of Jews standing against the world, doing our own thing. That is her. And it's also an amazing celebration of objects. And we found a really cool object to get to know. So what do you think of when you think of Hanukkah and the stuff for Hanukkah. So I think of lighting the menorah every night, which for me means candles. Candles are something most of us think about, and they're certainly ready-made. Uh, Ahuva doesn't do ready-made. Ahuva is homegrown kosher, after all. And so she makes her own wicks. Back in temple times, and many people still today, light actual cups with oil and put freestanding wicks in the cups, and that's what they burn for Hanukkah. So we went with Ahuva to her farm to do Hanukkah the homegrown way. So we're here at the home of homegrown kosher, Ahuva's house. Good morning, chickens! And there they go. We're in Muncie, New York, at the home of Ahuva Gottdiener, who runs Homegrown Kosher, a popular blog and social media account. She's amassed more than 75,000 Instagram followers by sharing what her world looks like how her Orthodox Jewish life combines with modern homesteading. Ahuva's backyard has gardens and chickens. It's like Jewish little house on the prairie. I feel like these are the best fed chickens. They're better fed than anyone because they're eating like your delicious Probably. stock that you made Probably. yesterday. Probably. 70,000 people watched bubbling uh, on your stove. It really looks amazing. But the reason we're here today isn't just to hang with the chickens. We're gonna talk about spinning wicks for Hanukkah from the cotton that my father grew. It's Hanukkah, and Ahuva, like the rest of us, needs a menorah. But unlike the rest of us, she's doing it herself. She's spinning cotton that her father grew into wicks to be placed into nine little cups of oil, the official halachic way to do it, just like they did in the temple. Cotton grows on a plant. You know how a dandelion it like gets that, makes that fluff? So it makes fluff, and in the fluff is the seeds. I'll show you. This is what's inside the flower once it opens up, and that's a cotton seed. So after we had gotten our fill of chicken cuteness, we went inside and Ahuva showed us her spinning setup. Ahuva handed us these little balls of cotton. They were the same size as those little cotton balls you get at the drugstore. Inside the fluff, there's a small seed, which has to come out before you can do anything else to the cotton. And it's hard to get out. The fibers stick to the seed and don't want to come off. So I sit by hand and I pull the seeds out. And then we get a little bit of fluff like we have, I have here in this bowl. So then what I need to do is if, if I was trying to make like the perfect fiber, super thin thread and I wanted to, you know, make garments ahead of it or something like that, it probably, I would have to be more exacting about this. But right now what I'm trying to do is get the fibers in more or less the same direction so I can spin it. These are combs. They look scary. They look like a torture implement, honestly. It's a piece of wood with like nails sticking, sharp nails sticking up. That's basically what they look like. It almost looks like, like what you like, groom a dog with. 
obviously a lot more intense. Yes, I have something similar for my rabbits. I'll show you how it works. I'm by no means an expert at combing um, cotton. Ahuva is more familiar with spinning yarn, but whatever the fiber, she prefers doing things the homemade way. So for Hanukkah, of course she would spin her own wicks. Right now I'm taking the little links of fiber, the little locks or actually staple length, I think it's called in cotton, and I'm putting them on to the comb, basically all like facing in one direction. Because if you think about it, what a fiber is, it's like a little teeny, teeny, tiny string. So you're trying to align the strings more or less facing in the same direction. Although she's relatively new to spinning cotton, this homegrown ethos is something Ahuva's had her whole life. She grew up in Brooklyn, where her dad also loved to do things a little DIY. He turned their small Brooklyn yard into a garden where he grew corn and cucumbers and all sorts of things you might not expect to see in a big city. When I was a teenager, we grew wheat for the first time. And then we did the whole little tiny patch of wheat and then went through the whole process of threshing it and grinding, like the whole winnowing and grinding it. And then made I made like a roll out of it. It was so much fun. There are pictures of me somewhere in an album, like sitting and winnowing <laughs> a little tiny bit of wheat. And we didn't even have like a wheat grinder. I grinded by hand with a mortar and pestle. It was, it was intense, but it was so much fun. So this is what I grew up with, the idea like, let's try to figure out how we could do it ourselves. Doing things herself like this is how she grew up. In some ways, Ahuva has always been like this. She stayed the same while the world came around to her perspective. I, I've been like this. I've been interested in these types of things forever. I mean, since I was a kid. And it was considered weird when I was a teenager. Like, we went on a school trip when I was in high school, and I brought a fishing rod. We was to, like, a place we stayed over, and I brought a fishing rod, and I caught fish. Like, that was just, like, a very interesting thing to do. But I was like, we're going, we're just going on a boat. I'm just going to go on a boat and row around in circles. I'm going to do something. I'm going to catch some fish. So um, whenever someone for like, I went to high school with something stops me like, oh, I follow you on social media. We went to high school together. You're so cool. I was like, I'm exactly the same as I was in high school. It just now you think what I'm doing is cool. <laughs> but it's more than cool. It's a way for her to connect with her spirituality. Everything that we have, there's so many different factors that could go wrong. So, so many things. So it's really an appreciation that if I have this dress that I'm wearing, like so many things had to go right. And God runs the world and he had to ensure that everything, like it's mind boggling to think about how many things had to be arranged so I could be wearing this dress today. You know, we're sitting here making wicks for Hanukkah, right? There's a very clear Jewish connection, but I'm curious, do you think in what you're doing? I mean, do you tie it back to Jewish ritual, to Jewish life, to Jewish tradition? So because my Judaism is not just like, we look at, we think about, I think, is it a religion? It's not, it's a way of life. Every part of my life has to do with my Judaism. It's who I am. It's not just what I do. So everything ties back to that because of that. But let's get back to making wicks. After combing out the cotton, Huva pulled the fibers through a diz, a disc with a hole in the middle twisting the fibers into one long strand. Then she feeds that strand into her spinning wheel. It's got two pedals. It doesn't look like the type like you think like from, what was it? Too fast. Sleeping Beauty. Sleeping Beauty, that's the one, thank you. So what the spinning wheel does is it puts twist in to the fiber and it helps turn the fiber into a yarn or a thread 
while at the same time pulling the fiber, the thread that you're creating, onto a bobbin and winding it up. So at this point, the fiber has been twisted into a string that gets wound around the bobbin as it goes. Take that string off the bobbin. It's actual string now, by the way. It's like what you would sew with. And then you cut it into little pieces, and then... Each of these is a little lick. It's like anything else that you do it from scratch, and it's such a feeling of accomplishment. These wicks get placed into cups of oil that get lit each night of Hanukkah. In the span of a few minutes, we've gone from a little ball of fluff to a wick ready for a beautiful oil menorah. Doing things by hand like this means a lot to Ahuva. We're so disconnected from where things come from right now. Everything, the, first of all, the process of making things is so fractured. Like the, let's go with, let's say, clothing. Like the fibers grow in one place, then it's transported somewhere else to be turned the yard and somewhere else to be woven in, into fabric and somewhere else to be sewn far away and then get sold even somewhere else. So it used to be that we were much more connected people with where your things came from. Even if you didn't, let's say, weave your own cloth, you knew where it came from. It was, things were more local. And this lack of, like, your food also, our food is grown who knows where. Like, and then even if you just buy your own produce to cook your own food, you're not really connected to where that is coming from. And people just really crave that feeling of connection. And this gives them that, even if they're not doing it themselves. And a lot of people are not going to do this themselves. But now when they use a wick or even clothing, because now it's made out of fiber, they can understand more of the process that somebody had to go through or a lot of somebody's in order to get them that. And that, it gives them appreciation. That's one of the things like on my website, like with the tagline that I have is a lifestyle of appreciation and connection. Because it's not only about connection, it's also about really appreciating and understanding where everything we have, whether it's food, whether it's clothing, whether it's your phone, where it comes from, that it's, there's a process and there's people, human beings along the way who are involved in the process of creating it. Doing things with your hands is very, very therapeutic. I really feel that uh, for me personally, but I think for everyone, even if you think you're not a handy person, Anything you make with your hand is because it gives you that connection. It's not just what you end up with, it's the process also. And when you're doing it for someone else, that's also a real, like you're being able to be giving also at the same time. I think right now when there's a lot of anxiety and that people are feeling helpless, that being able to do something, create something with your hands really helps. At one point during our visit, Ahuva twisted a little bit of the cotton fiber by hand. No spinning wheel, just fingers on cotton. The original spinning was just done by hand, just putting twist into the fiber. That's it. Just twist. And it strengthens it. And it strengthens it because together we're stronger. And that goes for the Jewish people, nation, and that goes for all people in the world when we're together. When there's fighting, we're not strong. When people are together and stand together, we're stronger. Now for Mazel Tovs, let's head back to Baltimore to hear from the crowd at the conservative Masorti Shabbaton and convening. There were so many Mazel Tovs, we couldn't run them all. But here are some highlights.
So the good news is, is now everyone gets to line up for Mazel Tovs. So the mics are there and there. We're going to keep talking, but quietly or not, get up on those mics. One line there, one line with me. I'll show you how it's done. I would like to give a Mazel Tov to the whole team at Tablet who just put on an amazing Hanukkah Bazaar yesterday. Uh, it was a beautiful time to just get a bunch of Jews in a room, not, li- not unlike this. And it was really special to, to have seen it and to have been part of it and just really proud of everyone. So that was, that's my mazel tov. Indeed, when the going gets tough, the tough goes shopping. I loved the bazaar. It was wonderful. Um, I would like to extend, just to you know, completely overshadow everything and everyone, extend a mazel tov to my wonderful daughter, Yael, Lily Bessie, who uh, became a bat mitzvah earlier in the year when we went to Israel and she read beautifully from the Torah. But yesterday was her bat mitzvah party for her friends. In New York, now look, I, I um, served in the IDF and have been in combat in several situations. Nothing prepares you for 74, 12-year-old girls <laughs> dancing in one space. Uh, but mazel tov to Lily. And, and mazel tov to you. You survived it. All right, Joshua Molina. Oh, I never have anything. Nobody in my sphere of influence has accomplished anything worthy of note. But my cousin, my nephew rather, Ben, has a new job. Hats off to Ben. Wow. So mysterious, we're not going to find out what it is. Mike Werbo from Washington, D.C. I once served as rabbinic supervision for Unorthodox. Thank you very much. Um, I I don't know if this is a mazel tov or a b'sha'a tova to uh, Harold Kravitz, president of the rabbinical assembly, whose uh, son, Gabe Kravitz, and his wife, Yael Smiley, either have recently had or are expecting a baby any moment. And mazel tov to them and to big brother Joshua and Yona as well. Yeah. And that's how it's done. As well, a mazel tov to my daughter, Maya, collecting her um, college acceptances. Yes. Emily Kamen, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I know Josh, you probably get lots of um, you know, people loving on you. I just wanna say I love your sister who I get to work with. I'm offering a mazel tov to, uh, I guess myself, um, but also my daughter who's having her, her bat mitzvah this Shabbat and I'm still here at this conference. Right Amazing. Auto mazel, well done. Love it, you're doing it all. Hi, Susan Casper, Executive Director of NASA, North American Association of Synagogue Executives. Thank you. Um, once again, I just want to wish our, um, all of our colleagues and our auspicious association a mazel tov on its 75th anniversary. So Rabbi Philip Weintraub from Congregation B'nai Israel in St. Petersburg. I had fun with uh, Stephanie a little while ago. Congratulations to my congregation on 100 years this year. Hi, my name is Lisa Alperin from Congregation B'nai Amona in St. Louis, and we are so proud because we have a new senior rabbi, so Mazel Tov to Rabbi Jeffrey Abraham, who is here, who is our new senior rabbi. Mazel Tov. Hi, I'm Rabbi Paula McDrill, Rockland County, New York. Mazel Tov to my son, Josh Drill, who became engaged to Shai Eden on October 6th in Tel Aviv. Also to my daughter, Sarah Feinstein, and her husband, Sagi Feinstein, who had my third grandson on Wednesday. Beautiful. And, and named him 
uh, importantly, Geffen Nadav, and Nadav is for Nadav Goldstein, Zichon Olivracha, who was murdered on near Oz together with his eldest daughter on October 7th, one of Sagi's dearest friends. So healing the world with a brand new baby. Oh, Hashem. Wow. Beautiful. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mark Divers. I'm here to uh, wish Mazel Tov on my wife, who is back home celebrating her 65th birthday while I'm here. Whoa. My name is Sam Sussman. I'm from Congregation Beth Judea in Long Grove, Illinois. Uh, I wanted to wish a Mazel Tov out to Joyce Judah. Joyce in the back. She is our USY alumni director, and she put together a whole big Shabbaton this weekend with about 30 young adults. Bring us back together, reconnect us with the conservative movement, and help regrow the movement. Excellent. Hi, I'm Rabbi Kathy Felix from Bayonne, New Jersey. I think I've got the smallest standing congregation. We are a congregation of 40 individuals, but we are strong. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I am wishing a mazel tov to my brother, Dan Felix. Uh, he is a huge fan of this podcast and will be thrilled to have his name mentioned. <laughs> mazel tov that to you, Dan. That is sister of the year over there. Hi, I'm Rabbi Jacob Blumenthal from Gaithersburg, Maryland. I want to wish a mazel tov and very happy birthday to my favorite son. He happens to be my only son. But my favorite son, Jory Harris Blumenthal, who's 27 today. Hello, my name is Fred Benjamin. I'm the rabbi of Congregation Beshalom of the Blue Hills in Milton, Massachusetts. And I want to wish mazel tov to my mother, who turns 97 tomorrow. Hi, I'm Rabbi Rachel Coburn. I'm the rabbi at Rodef Shalom in Denver, Colorado. And I want to wish a mazel tov to my son, Adin Coburn Brody, who is just cast in the part of Lucas in the production of The Adams Family <laughs> at George Washington High School in Denver. Yeah. Josh, Josh. I didn't even get to read for it. <laughs> Hi, my name is uh, Rabbi Gideon Estes from Congregation Orami in Houston, Texas. And uh, what I want to give my mazel so far is to be at this convening that could be so amazing for so many LGBTQ folks to be visible and to be proud and like to be within a conservative movement and be a place where we can all be fully embraced. Hello, I'm uh, Joel Alter. I'm the rabbi of Congregation Beth Israel Ner Tamid in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, this Mazel Tov goes to my twin six-year-old daughters, Ayelet and Anael, who, while I am here, are in Brooklyn with their aunt and uncle, and today enjoyed their very first Manny Petty Mazel Tov. <laughs> Honestly. A, a profound Jewish life cycle event for any, any Jewish girl. Hi, I'm Max Silverstone. I'm a cantorial student at JTS. JTS, JTS. Um, I have three mazel tovs. The first one is to Rabbi Kevin Svee Friedman. Today is his birthday. Uh, so mazel tov. The second one, one of our uh, professors at JTS, Audrey Edelstein, she's our conducting professor. She and her husband, Rabbi Colin Chaim Eliezer Edelstein, just had a baby. So, mazel tov to them. Uh, yeah, the name's uh, Roni Mayer. Roni Mayer Edelstein. And the third is a matzah tov 
to whoever put the matzah on the snack table. <laughs> matzah dough. I'm a senior rabbi in Michael Beal's congregation, Beth Shalom, Wilmington, Delaware. Wilmington, Delaware. Thank you. And uh, I want to wish uh, Mazel Tov to the entire first state of Delaware. Four days after October 7th, we pulled together a We Stand With Israel rally quickly, and we had a love letter from President Biden. The governor was there. Our senior senator was there. The head of the Islamic Society of Delaware was there. We had a Latin American center there, African-American leadership there. And it's the first state of Delaware. What can I say? Mazel Tov to the first state. The great state of Delaware. Hey, Milk. Hey, uh, I'm Chazan Jacob Sandler, otherwise. Woo! From where? Otherwise known as Milk. <laughs> yes. Okay, great. Uh, I am currently serving as the Chazan at North Suburban Synagogue Beth L in Highland Park, Illinois. And I also have a couple Mazel Tovs. One is to my dad, Kenny Sandler, who is known musically as the Deep Drags. His band, that is really just him and a few of his friends, released their uh, most recent single on Spotify. Shameless plug, he'd be so happy. Huh. My sister, doing the real work, also on a Mazel Tov. She has a birthday in a few days and a PhD thesis defense a few more days after that and will be getting her first of two doctorates from Indiana University. We're so very proud of her. So Mazel Tov to my sister, Razel. And, right and nothing for mom? Who's actually listening to this right I now? I want to say mazel tov to my mom for getting her third shout out from me on this podcast. <laughs> we love you. All right, that's all from me. Nice to see Hi, I'm Alexander Davis from Minneapolis, Minnesota. The uh, other frozen chosen. And uh, my synagogue, Bethel Synagogue, where I serve as a rabbi, is also celebrating 100 years. Hi, I'm Rabbi Abby Weber of BZBI in Philadelphia. And I want to say mazel tov to my daughter on her third birthday this Sunday and her first ever haircut, which she badly needs. <laughs> I love that. Hi, I'm Mindy Gordon. I'm the synagogue consultant for the Central District and also like Chazan Milk from Highland Park, Illinois. And I want to wish a mazel tov to my son and daughter-in-law, John and Aaron Gordon, who are huge fans of your podcast, on the birth of their first daughter, Eden Rea, two weeks ago. Oh, mazel tov. tov. Hi, my name is Lisa Stein. I'm the executive director at Hewlett East Rockaway Jewish Center on Long Island. And I want to wish a mazel tov to my daughter, Gabriella, and her peers who are serving on their gap year in Israel and have not come home. Um. Hi, my name is Cantor Daniela Risman. I serve, hi everyone, I'm at the Emanuel Synagogue in West Hartford, Connecticut. And I want to say a mazel tov to my father, Larry Risman, who has a birthday coming up this Thursday. Mazel tov, Abba. Mazal Hi, I'm Barbara Hoff. I'm the education chair for Congregation Brith Shalom in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. My mazel tov is for our congregation reaching 100 this year, and especially for our rabbi, Michael Singer. Uh, Rabbi Michael Singer, who is the head of the Social Justice Commission, and my mazel tov is for his being. Hi, my name is Ned Gladstein. I am from Caldwell, New Jersey. I received a text message from my wife about an hour ago with a video of our youngest grandson taking his first steps. Aww. 
So I want to say mazel tov to my daughter, but really translate that as good luck. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Valerie Thaler, the Mid-Atlantic District Synagogue Consultant for USCJ. And I wanted to wish a mazel tov to my wonderful colleague, Linda Sussman, and her husband, Howard, on the birth of their newest granddaughter, Lane Madison Sussman, born a few days ago in New York. Hi, I'm Bruce Tomar from Ventnor, New Jersey, uh, first vice president, Federation of Jewish Men's Clubs, representing over 14,000 men worldwide. And I just want to extend the muzzle tough to USCJ for this amazing convening that I'm having an amazing experience. Thank you. Wonderful. I'm Tom Sudo from the Jerusalem in the Midwest, Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> Mazel tov to my grandson, Miles, who will turn four this week. And in honor of his birthday, I bought him the Chope trainer so he could <laughs> begin preparing for his bar mitzvah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Max Arad. I'm the convening director. <laughs> And I'm Rabbi Ilana Garber from, yes. from the Rabbinical Assembly and from West Hartford, Connecticut. Couple, couple things to say. First of all, Liel, you stole my mazel tov, but mazel tov to you and your family on your daughter's bat mitzvah party. Thank Last you. Last night, we're so glad that you were able to be here with us this morning and today, so mazel tov to you. Stephanie, mazel tov to you on being a voice for our little boys and little girls to hear. My children listen to you and they love hearing the wisdom that you offer <laughs> and the, the, everything that you teach. And so thank you, mazel tov to you. Thank you, thank you. We need those voices. And Joshua, mazel tov to you for finally, there's a show that my husband and I can watch together and enjoy, The West Wing. I had never watched it until you got onto the, unorthodox so mazel tov to you for that thank you and i want to add because here i am a rabbi i've got the mic now this is my dream come true to have you guys to have unorthodox at this convening to have this opportunity for our entire convening to explore Judaism, explore what it means, yes, that was a plug, explore what it means to, to engage in this conversation. And I'm just such a fangirl that I'm just so excited. And when I think of you guys, I think of what it says in, oh, look at that, Pirkei Avot. Uh. <laughs> when it says, Hakot Safui V'Rashut Netuna, Everything is foreseen, but freedom of choice is granted. And I think of that when I think of what you offer us. You come here with a script, and then you bring so much love, wisdom, energy, and passion for what you do. And we are so grateful to you for bringing your Torah to our convening. And the conservative Masorti convening is so pleased to offer each of you a copy of our relatively newly published 5778 Do Some Math, Pure Chaos Vote for thank you, you to continue. Thank you Beautiful. so much. Thank you. And thank you for making this possible. Uh, Friends. And, and thank you for having us as part so, of this convening. We're so deeply touched. Thank you so much for it. And, and honestly, look. Our, our job is to tell Jewish stories and Jewish jokes, sometimes funny. Thank you so, so much. But, but your job in a moment of complete seriousness and gratitude, your job, as far as I'm concerned, is the most difficult, most essential, 
and most absolutely incredibly foundational one that there is. And the things that you do day in and day out, not just, you know, once a week on the air uh, telling Joe, but, but every hour of every day is what keeps this great big Jewish family alive. We are so grateful to you for everything. And we're always here for you with whatever you may need. Thank you. No, yes, Oscar, please. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be back next week with even more Hanukkah. As always, Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Liel Leibovitz, and the stress pickle himself, Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Jerome Rusquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo is by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our News of the Jews theme is by Steve Barton. We'd love to hear from you. Send us emails at unorthodoxatabamag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Until next week, shalom, friends, and happy Hanukkah.